This morning I was driving to the church. This happened to me a lot last week. I don't know what God was trying to do to me. But uh, I feel like a lot of times I'll go in this streak where my, my patience gets tested. Have you ever had this happen where you're like, why is everything testing my patience? And so this morning I normally try to get to the church and get going early so I can kind of get set up. And I hit every single red light. It's not an exaggeration. I think I hit six red lights. And so when you look both ways when I'm going early, there's no one on the streets. There's literally no one on the streets. And so have I before just proceeded to just go anyway? I have because there's no one on the streets. But I had this thought. I was like, I'm sure there's probably like an officer ready to snipe me from the trees. That would be my luck. So I'm not going to do it. And so I didn't, but I was, I found myself getting frustrated. And then even yesterday I was trying to park in Preston center to go somewhere. And it, it was one of those days where I'm in the garage and, and someone's backing up cause they got to let somebody else take their spot, but up, oh, should they go? Should they not? And they wait and then they go back and then they come back out and then, Oh, this guy wants a spot. He found one. So there's another guy. So it took me, I think I counted 17 minutes to actually like get the parking spot. And yes, I counted. And so I can go through multiple things on when this happens. Okay, YMCA situation, which we bring up a lot, is when there's the guy on the machine you need, okay, and they're, they're checking their phone, and they're taking about 12 minutes for maybe, you know, 30 seconds of actual activity. And I'm, my patience gets tested. Have you had this happen? It might have happened to you, like, at a restaurant, where, like, this is taking so long to get my food. You could go on and on. You're waiting for someone to text you back. Or something like that. You're waiting for the teacher to give you the grade. And we don't like waiting. Waiting is frustrating. Waiting tests our patience. Waiting is really difficult. And so I say that because in the Bible, especially in the book of Psalms, one of the refrains that you see over and over again is wait for the Lord. Wait on the Lord. This is just one example. This is Psalm 27, 14. This is one of my favorite uh, chapters in the Bible, because if you struggle with anxiety, Psalm 27 is where I would go to. When I struggle with worry or anxiety, Psalm 27 is where I go to. And it closes by saying, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. It's like as you wait for the Lord, your heart will be strong. Your heart will receive courage. And it says it again, wait for the Lord. Waiting means to look eagerly for something, to hope for something, to expect Something. That's what it means. And so I tell you that because God loves the process. God loves it when we wait because waiting does something to us. It forms us. It shapes us. And the reason I start by telling you that is because not only do we all experience this in our lives, is that David's going to experience this today. We're going to start a segment of this series where I'm going to teach this week. Ross is going to teach next week on Psalm 23, and then I'm going to teach the next week. And these two weeks that I'm doing are kind of a a journey that David's about to go on where he's going to have to wait on the Lord. And specifically what's going to happen today is he is going to be in the castle. Everything's going to be awesome. But through a series of events, he's going to move from the castle to hiding in a cave. He's going to go from the castle to the cave. And he's going to embark on a really crazy season of life. And what I want to do is just walk us through that story. How did he get from the castle to the cave? And what did he think about when he was in the cave? And then I want to give us two things that it has to do for us today. Okay, so how did David get from the castle to the cave? I just want to walk us through the story. If you remember as a teenager, which is crazy to think about, 
David was anointed to be the next king by Samuel, and he's just defeated Goliath. We talked about that last week. And if you remember, I told you, you're not David. I'm not David. Okay, we need a David who's ultimately Jesus. But if you think about that, and he just defeated this huge enemy. So he's moved from being the shepherd boy who's always with the sheep, who smells bad. Remember, he was delivering cheese to the soldiers. He's like the Uber Eats of that time. So he goes from being the shepherd boy to the savior of the entire nation. And so things are going pretty well for him. He's all of a sudden very popular. Things are awesome. This would be the part of the movie that's got like the upbeat music and then the montage of everything's awesome. Okay, that's what David is experiencing right now. There's a happy song playing and everything is great. And then in chapter 18, verse one, we see this, something else really good happens to David. It says, as soon as he'd finished speaking to Saul, this is right after he kills Goliath, the soul of Jonathan, that's the son of Saul, the son of the king was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And so Saul takes him. He's like, I want you to be with me now. We're going to promote you. And Jonathan makes this covenant with David and he stripped himself of the robe. You're like, that sounds weird. That's a weird scene. Basically what that meant is he was taking what belonged to him, which was he was the next rightful king because he's the son of the king. And he's putting it on David. Think about the humility there. He's saying, I know that this is the one that God is raising to be king. So I'm going to take what actually belongs to me and I'm going to humbly put it on him. We see this Christ-like heart in Jonathan, this desire to be friends with David. This is David's really his best friend. God gives David one friend. And then David went out, verse five, he was successful wherever Saul sent him because God was with him. And so what did Saul do? Saul set him over the men of war. And so he gets this big time promotion. So not only does he find a best friend, he gets a big time promotion. He's no longer leading sheep. He's leading men in battle as a high ranking officer. And what we know is that he found so much success that to the point where when he would simply walk out in battle, like when other nations saw David, they would run and flee because they knew it was going to end poorly for them. Okay, and then um, in verses six to seven, if you're like, oh man, this can't get any better. Okay, watch this. Verse six to seven, as they're coming home from war, he struck down the Philistine, the women. There's all these women that came out of the cities. They're singing and dancing with tambourines, songs of joy. And then watch the song that say, Saul has struck his down as thousands. In David, his tens of thousands. Now, I don't know if you can do math, but 10,000 is more than a thousand, okay? And so all these women are singing songs about him. Like people in the clubs are singing songs and dancing to songs about David. Like you're in traffic, you know, you're at the grocery store and you're like, Saul has struck his thousands and David, like that's what's in your head. Okay. Was that good? I don't know, but that's, that's all I can do. And so that's what's happening. And so one guy says that in this passage, in this section, David is regularly the object of the verb to love. Jonathan loves him. The women love him. The people of the nation love him. And now he is married into the king's family. He marries Saul's daughter. Pronunciation, I learned this, is Michal. And so he marries Michal. So he's one step away from the throne. And so I'm like, man, if this is what it's like to be God's anointed, like sign me up. This is amazing. This sounds awesome. This is like you've got a 4.0. Is that still good or do you have to go up now? I don't know. 4.5? I'm not sure. But it's like you're, you're high up there. You're the captain of everything you want to be the captain of. 
Everyone knows and loves you. You've got six-pack abs to go with it. Everyone wants a picture of you to post on their social media. And you even have a good parking spot, okay, at school. Like everything is amazing. But there's one major issue, and this is the major issue. This is the problem with everything going great for David. Saul is not happy with him. There's one person that's not says he's very angry. He didn't like the song. He didn't like being compared to David. And so this current king who had lived for the praise of men no longer gets the praise of men. David's getting more popular. And so how do you think he felt about it? Well, obviously, in these verses, he felt jealous. He doesn't like the comparison. And so his eyes are on David. Now, I don't know if you've ever lived like this where someone's like threatening you. Maybe there's a guy or girl and they're threatening your person or something like that. Or someone's threatening you on the death chart and you kind of eye them. You know, you look at them, they're a threat to you. That's how he feels now. And so what's crazy, I'm just going to summarize some of this section, but Saul tries to get David killed in battle. He's like, okay, I'm just going to do this subtly. Not going to let anybody see me too much on the line. I'm going to just go and send him off to battle and tries to get him killed. Well, that doesn't work. He actually kills a ton of people. He's successful wherever he goes. And so he goes back and this time Saul's so angry And while David's playing music, Saul launches a spear at him. So he's so mad at David. He's so threatened by him that he tries to kill him with a spear. And it gets so crazy that David has to flee. He has to leave because he's afraid for his life. And so literally what he does is he jumps out of a window. That's what he does. You can go read it. And his wife, McCall, puts a pillow in the bed with with goat's hair. So it looks like a person. So if you kind of look in the room you'll think it's a person. This is like Ferris Bueller's day off kind of stuff. If you've ever seen that, that's what's happening um, right now. And so Saul is so paranoid and so threatened that he actually doesn't care anymore about being subtle. He makes it a state policy to kill David. He sends his best troops to go after him and kill him. It's like a state policy. Now we want this guy dead. And so I don't know if you do this at other schools, but I know at Highland Park, you will play the game assassin. And you know what I'm talking about? And so you'll, you'll get someone, you're supposed to kill them. They're supposed to kill you. And I know this because it, when it's that season, that Bible studies are theoretically a safe place, but everyone's freaking out afterwards. Like afterwards, everyone's like looking under stuff. Like who's the person? Are they about to kill me? And that's like David's life. I mean, it changes how you live when you think someone's coming after you. Okay. David's doing this all the time now. Like, think about that feeling you get. David's like, for real, like, that's not a water gun. That's a legitimate spear. And so this is his real life version of assassin. He is being sent after. And so think about this. In basically one day, David has lost his career. He's lost his home. He's lost his wife. He's lost his mentor, Samuel. He goes and sees him one more time. He will never see him again. That's the last time he'll ever see his mentor, Samuel, And he loses his best friend, Jonathan. David will only see Jonathan one more time before Jonathan is killed in battle. And not only that, but he realizes that there are spies all around him. Like Saul has sent these spies to try to kill him. So there's a book I read in seventh grade, which is random. It's by John Grisham. He's a legal writer. It's called The Firm. Tom Cruise is in the movie. Great movie. A little explicit, but great movie. And in that the guy who works for a law firm basically finds out that the law firm is this underground firm. It's really a mob operation. And when he starts to figure it out, 
He learns that they have tapped his phones, that they follow him wherever he goes because they don't want him to tell anyone. And so he lives knowing that everything he's doing is potentially being watched by spies. That's what David's dealing with in his life is there's people out to get him and he doesn't necessarily know who it is. And in two weeks, I'm going to tell you about one guy. His name's Doeg, cool name, bad guy. He is a spy and he's acting kind of weird, but you can't really tell. And so this is going to turn into a spy thriller where David notices this guy and it gets really crazy. And then Saul kills a bunch of people. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. And so here's where we find ourselves is David's so desperate in this situation, which wouldn't we all be, that he flees to the land of the Philistines, which is where he just killed Goliath. So think about that. Like the guy that just killed your hero shows up to your land. Like that's desperation. That's a crazy thing for David to do, but he's so desperate that that's where he can go and get away from because he knows they won't go there. But he's so afraid when he walks in that he actually pretends to be insane. Like he starts spitting everywhere. Then he's like writing on the walls and stuff because he wants them to think he's crazy. Okay. And afterwards he writes Psalm 34. And so if you've read Psalm 34, you've sung Psalm 34. It's in the context of David pretending to be insane, which is kind of crazy. So Psalm 34 is that, but that takes us to chapter 22, verse one. And this is where we're going to camp out for the rest of our time today. This is where we meet our King David. This is where he is. Okay. David departed from there. He left the Philistines and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And that's where he is. That's where our king is now. He is fleeing for refuge in a cave. And so while honoring God, while doing nothing wrong, he loses his job, he loses his home, he loses his wife, he loses his mentor, he loses his friend, he loses his safety, and now, pretending to be insane, he loses his self-respect. And so here's the question for us today. It's the same question for David. What do we do when we go from the castle to the cave? from the heights to the depths, when being faithful to the Lord isn't fun anymore, when things are going really well in your life, but all of a sudden something happens in your family, when you break up with someone and it's the right thing to do, but now you're lonely all the time, when you're excited about your faith in God after the Florida trip or after a week at camp or something like that, but then when you move home, you come back, it starts costing you socially. And it's actually difficult to follow Jesus. What do you do when you're not really that excited to read your Bible anymore? And it's just hard to understand. And you're like, man, there's so many things I'd rather be doing. What do you do when you're depressed and you have no idea why? What do you do when you feel like you can't stop doing that thing that you really want to stop doing? And it fills you with self-condemnation and shame. And you don't know what to do about it. You don't feel like you can tell anyone about it. That's where David is. David has gone from the castle to the cave. And before you're like, well, well, that just got really depressing, like really quickly. Um, David's about to spend 10 years in this season, not in the cave, but in the wilderness. He's going to eventually get out of the cave. He's going to spend 10 years in the wilderness, Saul trying to kill him in this desert before he's officially the king. Isn't that crazy? But I want you to hear this because it's like, wow, that's depressing. Why are we talking about this? That's kind of sad. A lot of people, if I were to ask you, hey, what was David's biggest moment in his life? What do you think people would say? Killing Goliath, right? Like that's what we think of when we think of David. But what I want to tell you is that this season that he's about to embark on that we're going to look at today and in two weeks, this is the defining moment of his life. This is going to become the defining moment of his life. And what you're going to find is that God often leads us into the cave, into the wilderness, not to hurt them, not to hurt us, 
but to actually help us. Now, as I was involved with Highland Park football, when I was a junior, I injured my ankle. And one of the things I got to do at some of the games, and I always blame that, by the way. I'm always like, yeah, I would have had a great career if it weren't for the ankle, which isn't true, but I can use that. And people are like, was it really? I'm like, you can't prove that it wasn't. You know what I mean? So I always use it. I'm like, man, I was on, I was, you know, tracking to four-star status in the 247 rankings, but the ankle happened. So it's frustrating. You know, so I'm, I always can say that. Not every one of you can say that, but I can say that, which is great. Um, so anyway, I was headed to, to OU to play football, you know, and then the ankle happened. And so I was injured that season, and they gave me a headset one game. And I remember I'm on the sideline. Honestly, it was extremely boring. Like the game's three, four hours. HP was blowing some team out, and I was like, I just want to go home. This is not fun. This is boring. It's not enjoyable at all. I'm standing for four hours. But all of a sudden, in the fourth quarter, they put on a headset because HP was blowing out this team. And I got to hear the coaches talk behind the scenes, and it was amazing. In particular, the defensive coordinator. Offense was really chill. Defensive side of the ball, the defensive coordinator at the time, who's kind of a legend, um, absolutely no filter on the mic. I mean, I heard words I did not know what they meant. Like afterwards, I was like, I think I'm going to have to look that up. That was, the vocabulary was unbelievable. And I was like, this is better than the game. I get to hear this dude, like he's yelling at his assistant coaches. He's banging things. He's throwing things. I'm like, you're up 40 to nothing right now. It was amazing. And I grew to just absolutely love this guy. And I was like, I want the headset, man. Like I want to hear what that guy has to say. He is, was unbelievable. I have some other really good stories about this particular individual. But I tell you that because I got this behind the scenes view at what was really going on. And it was fascinating. It was unbelievable. And the coolest thing about the cave with David is today, what we're going to get to do for the last few minutes here is we're going to get to put on a headset. We don't have to wonder what's he thinking? What's he doing? What's he saying? The Bible actually gives it to us and it gives it to us in the form of two cave Psalms in scripture It's like we get to read his journal during this time when he's in the cave. We get to put the headset on and we get to hear what he's actually thinking. And what you're going to see is in the cave, God is actually doing something in him. And what you're going to find, and I'm going to tell you what it means for us, is that in the cave, God is creating a king. That's what's happening. Is in the cave, God is creating a king. He is building into David so that he'll actually be capable of ruling and leading in a way that's actually helpful for people. So here, this is the two cave Psalms, Psalm 142 and Psalm 57. And so we're just going to blow through them real quick. These are Psalms that David wrote when he's in that very cave. And so Psalm 142, watch this one. With my voice, this is David in the cave. It says, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. And so what's funny about this one is you're not going to sing this one in church, right? Like no one's going to be like, let's sing Psalm 142 today. It's not the happiest one. When my spirit faints within me, says to God, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. He's talking about the spies. These people are trying to kill me. Look to the right and see. At your right hand is where you would have protection. And he's saying, look to the right and see. There's no one who takes notice of me. He's saying, I'm completely alone. There is no one here to help me. I've been completely abandoned. There is no refuge that remains to me. No one cares for my soul. And so it's like, whoa, that's pretty honest. That's pretty depressing, David. And so here's the question. Is it actually okay to pray like this? 
Like he's getting very honest with the Lord right here. And I think the truth is a lot of us don't think that we can talk to God like this. Like we think we have to be all proper and sound really good and you're not allowed to complain. But what you see is, is it okay to pray like this? Yes, because it's included in scripture because we are allowed to pray like this. In fact, it's healthy to pray like this. Psalms, when you read the Psalms, it will assure you that you're not crazy. Okay, if you feel abandoned, if you feel alone, if you feel stressed out about life, if you feel depressed, if you feel sad, if you feel tempted, there is a psalm for those situations. This is especially relevant for the guys in the room. Not, I normally don't like call out a gender or anything, but in our culture, guys are told all the time, just man up. All right, don't show your weakness. And that living that way will eventually rob you because what you will do is you will numb yourself from how you're feeling. And then over time, you will be numb to any feeling in life. And so this honesty is the first step. And this is the first of two things we learn from David in Psalm 142, is you can be honest with how you're feeling. You can take it to God. Now, for me, I'm bad at this. I don't like this. And so sometimes I don't even know how I'm feeling. And so sometimes what I have to do, especially when I slow down, is I have to ask, how am I actually feeling right now? Because the emotions that you have are indicating something. They tell you something that's going on. And so for some of us, we just need to stop and actually ask that question. How am I actually feeling? And be honest with God about it. But here's the thing. Honesty is not just the first step. Like we're not, if we look in the cave, you're not just going to see David like, oh, everyone hates me. And he just stays there. It's not what he does. He takes it to God, the only person that can actually do anything about it. And so what he's doing is he's bringing God into his situation. Now watch what happens next. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. See, his perspective starting to shape and shift. It says, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I'm brought low. Deliver me from my persecutors. They are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. And look how he ends it. The righteous will surround me. You will deal bountifully with me. In the cave, he gains confidence that God is going to take care of him. And so the first thing he does is he's honest with God. But the second thing he does is honesty prepares the way for him to get perspective. And so when we deal with uncertainty, when we deal with anxiety and we just dwell on it, that will rob us. But what we see in Psalm 142 is there is a place to take those things. And David takes them to God. Honesty prepares the way for you to experience God's perspective. But it's also going to do something else. So this is Psalm 57. This is the second of the cave psalms. We're just going to look at three verses here. This is one of my favorite psalms. He says to David, he says, or says to God, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. So he has this perspective shift. He realizes that this cave is not my refuge from Saul. God is my refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till these storms of destruction Pass by. Verse 2 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. If you're ever doubting God's plans and purposes for your life, you can say with David, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. So he knows God is going to fulfill his purpose for my life. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness with the exclamation point. And so what David realizes in the cave is that God is the one running things. Saul is not the one running things. God is the one running things. And so during hardship, he, um, David starts to get hope. 
During hardship, David starts to get hope. And where does he get hope? He gets it in God's steadfast love and in God's purposes for him. Okay, steadfast love in the Old Testament, the word that you see over and over is hesed. That's the Hebrew word, hesed. It means loyal love. It means love that will never let you go. It will never let you down. It will always hold on to you. It will never end. And so in the cave, God is doing something in David. He is showing him to find hope, not in his circumstances, not in his relationships, but in God's loyal love and in God's purposes. Paul does the same thing in Romans 8. Romans 8 is written to people who are suffering. And Paul says, nothing can separate you from God's love. He's going to work all things according to the good of those who love him. And the truth is we have these amazing promises in scripture, but so many times we don't actually apply them to our lives because we're so busy looking at our circumstances and ourselves. I was uh, driving the other day and there was a girl, she was probably in middle school, I don't know. And she was looking at her phone like this while at one of those crosswalks, you know, and she was hitting the crosswalk button, but not looking ahead. And so the light turns green and I got to turn left and it's telling her to walk like the little, you know, like glowing white symbol with the guy walking is on. You know what I'm talking about? I don't even know how to explain that. And so she sees it. She doesn't see it. She's on her phone and I'm looking like, are you going? Are you not? And she's just staring there and she just literally keeps hitting the button. And I'm just like, like go. And so I just went and I turned around. The light turned red. And she missed it. Like she completely missed the light in front of her because she's so busy on her phone. And so this happens to us is we've got God's promises in scripture that change our perspective on everything. But so many of us don't look at them. We're so busy looking straight down that we don't take advantage of what God's given us. And so I want to end with two things, two quick applications. What do we learn from David in the cave? When you go from the castle to the cave in life, what are two things that you can take away? Okay, the first one is this. These are the two takeaways. God is at work in our caves. Okay, one writer calls this season in David's life, and we're going to talk about it over the next few weeks, he calls it the school of brokenness. Because what is happening over these next 10 years is that God is going to teach David to rely on him by taking away everything else. He is going to show David that he is enough no matter what. And in the cave, David is desperate, he's confused, and he's in danger, and yet God protects him and provides for him anyway. When everything else is stripped away, David experiences God's sufficiency. And that's why, as Ross is going to teach us next week, he can say Psalm 23, verse 1, where he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not want means I don't lack anything. I don't lack anything. I have everything that I need. In Psalm 34, which he wrote during this sequence of his life, in verses 8 to 10, he says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And then he says, Even though the lions might be weary, even though the lions might be hungry, those who fear the Lord lack nothing. Do you see the common thing? Is in the cave, in the wilderness, David is learning that if you have God and you don't have anything else, you lack nothing. And so there's two things that are true. Bill, I think I have this on a slide. There's two things that are true that you need to know and that God teaches us in the cave. The first one is your greatest enemy in life is your sense of self-sufficiency. Do we have this? Your greatest enemy is your own sense of self-sufficiency. So when you think like, I've got it, I can do this. I've got it in myself. The things around you are going well. You drift from depending on God. 
And so God wants to teach you to depend on him because that's where joy is found. That's where freedom is found. That's where peace is found. And so if dependence is the goal, then weakness is the advantage. Meaning that if you, if the goal is to grow more dependent on God, then the weaknesses in your life are actually an advantage to you. They're not bad things. And that's what David's learning in the cave is that he's learning how to depend on God in his weaknesses. See, life is hard and we're not going to be a place where we pretend like, oh, it's always easy. And the enemy, when life is hard, is going to want to convince you that God does not know what's best for you. He's holding out on you. And if you soak in that long enough, you're going to find so many reasons to distance yourself from God and his people. He wants you to, the enemy wants you to question God's goodness, his character, his grace. Okay, for me, my freshman year of college was, was a cave experience. I've had a few in my life, and one of them was my freshman year of college. And I remember being mad at God at times. And through that process, what I learned is that I had become so dependent on other people's approval to make me happy that when it was taken away, I learned to rest in God's approval for me. And so Charles Spurgeon has this quote, and I love this. This is what David's learning in the cave. He says, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Meaning that you are in the exact condition that God wants you to be in. He's working out his purposes in your life. We don't have this view of God. There's a sociologist who did this study and he says in the West today, people don't believe, they may say they believe in God, but they don't believe in this big God that's in control of everything. That's working out good purposes intimately with the people that he loves. And so in the cave, we get to meet this big God. In the cave, your faith gets to be deepened. So it's not built on or rooted in your emotions, but on the truthfulness of God's word. One of the biggest problems in youth ministry in America today is it's basically built on trying to create these emotional experiences. So you're really fired up with the music and you leave the week of camp or whatever, all built up, but it doesn't last because it's not built on something that's sustainable. And so emotions and all that, it's not a bad thing. Like we should be worked up at times with these truths, but sometimes we have to just be in it even when we don't feel like it. And so the question is, is my faith built on my feelings or is it built on the truthfulness of God's word? And in the cave of life, God builds our faith to rest on his word, even when we're not feeling like it. See, God doesn't promise us no pain. He promises to be with us in the pain. And so I want to ask you this question. I'm going to end with one thing. Is what's God been using to change you in your life recently? In what ways has he used your own sin, the sins of others, your own struggles to teach you new things about who he is? Okay, and this is the second takeaway. And I want to end with this. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, when David's in the cave, watch what happens. This will be quick. I want you to see this. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, Everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David in the cave and he became their leader. There's about 400 people that flocked to David. People who are struggling, people who are broken, people who are the outcast gather to this lonely King David who experiences in the cave. And so once again, as has been the case throughout this whole series, does that sound familiar? Because this is not the only lonely king to be that we know. In Matthew 8, 20, Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but me, the son of man, has no place to lay his head. See, here's the thing, and I want you to hear this if you don't hear anything else, is that Jesus also, like David, was desperate. Jesus was in danger. 
And yet, unlike David, God did not protect him. He did not provide for him so that broken sinners could flock to him and be protected and provided for forever. Jesus went through the ultimate cave because he loves you, because he loves me. And that gives you the ultimate hope in perspective, no matter what your cave is today. See, we all want hesed, that idea earlier, loyal love. That's what we need when we're in the cave. And what one guy said about this passage is that when you seek hesed, if you look for loyal love, you'll find yourself in the arms of Jesus Christ. And you, like Paul, in Romans 8.32, yeah, I think I have it up here, and I want to end with this. He says, he who did not spare his own son, he did not protect him from the cave. Jesus went through the ultimate cave. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the kind of faith you can have when you look at the cross, whatever cave you're in. God, we thank you for this story of the cave. We thank you that this is not just a random story that's kind of interesting, but this is a story that has so much to do with our own lives today. We thank you that we can learn from David that you are at work in the cave. We can be honest about our caves, Lord, and we can get perspective. And Lord, above all, we thank you and we praise you that Jesus went through the ultimate cave. He's the ultimate David so that we, the broken people, could go to him. We pray that that would give us perspective in all things. We pray that in his name. Amen.